Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and it's Monday. But hopefully we're the bright side here Monday, because if your Monday's anything like mine, it's a Monday. But anyhow, joining us on this lovely kind of Monday, <laughs> joining us as always, Mr. Jeff Copsetta and Henry Sledge. Gentlemen, how are you all doing tonight? I like mean, you said, it's Monday. It's Monday. It's, this is the best part. Right. Come on, guys. We're together. It's the best part of a Monday. You know, I was thinking right. earlier, this is everyone's sanctuary in a crazy world. You can come here to get away from things. And I got to thinking, well, how crazy is that that we take the content of the insanity of World War II and that's all of our sanctuary away from the craziness that's going on in regular world now. But, hey, that's why we're here. We're here to help you get away from things. So hopefully you enjoy our little time, our little get-together, as Jeff used to so lovely refer to as our little threesome. But, nay, not tonight. Tonight we're going all out with a foursome. That's right, Jeff. Why don't you introduce everybody to the fourth man to this this party. <laughs> Yeah, man, you you know, you catch me off guard like that, golly. That's what we're doing. We do no show prep, and I catch you off guard. You know, Henry's the first one that said threesome. Actually, that is true. You are, that is true. (laughs) But we just went along with it. Yeah, Uh, it is absolutely my pleasure to uh, introduce, again, uh, a returning guest, my friend uh, Dennis Blocker II. Uh, if you did not see the first episode we had with Dennis on, shame on you, first and foremost. Yes, shame on you. Yeah, you were definitely. wrong. Please go back, get on the website, episode 136. Uh, it was one of the most powerful episodes I've ever done with a guest on the show. I, I mean, and I'm not just saying that. That that was we we had so much great feedback. Uh, so I'm very excited about tonight. We're, we're going to have a little bit of a lighter topic uh, than we did in episode 136. This is um, this was Dennis's idea, right? So if it flops, you know, it's on him. Contact him, man. <laughs> but, Email him at um, Dennis that show flops at gmail dot com. But yeah, but if so, you loved you know, it, you can email us at mail call at wtsp world war two dot com. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know. For our listeners who, you know, if you've listened to us before, we talk a lot of war movies um, and, you know, the good, the bad, the I had no idea, this is amazing, um, or never doing that again. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to let Dennis take it away. And uh, just, we do have one rule. Uh, We don't say the thin red line on this podcast. Well, you already broke the rule. (laughs) What is your opinion of the thin red line? We'll give you 20 minutes and go. (laughs) Yeah, that was a a snoozer for me. Um, Yeah. Speaking of. Okay, we've hit that. Let's move out. Let's move on. We're beyond that. Dennis, Dennis, what's the first one you want to talk about? Well, you know, it's like uh, growing up in a military family, you know, I lived all over the world, lived in Iceland, lived in Guam, um, lived all over the States. You know, you're a DOD kid, uh, Air Force brat. Uh, I knew all about the, you know, fighter jets and this and that. Well, living in Iceland, 
we had two stations right and they were both the base stations so one was like at, at this this revolving uh cafeteria food what was at the base cafeteria and what was coming up at the uso club and this and that and then the other one was base programming and if you're on a military base there's going to be a lot of war movies to get shown and uh which was great for me uh and actually the first movie i ever remember seeing uh wasn't mary poppins or the wizard of oz it was Von Ryan's Express. Oh, I thought you were going to say Iron and, Eagle. Uh, it was Von <laughs> Ryan's Express. And there was just something about that that like captured just my imagination. One for one, uh, you know, the Germans, the, the best dressed of World War II, the uh, Italians who could care less what was going on, the British who were always conniving, and the Americans who were so cool. Um, I loved that movie. But that that wasn't the movie that really... The movie that I absolutely loved is 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. And have you guys seen that one? Yes. I remember seeing it when I was a little kid. Nope. Well, was that Van Johnson? Yep, that's right. Van Johnson. Yep. Yeah, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy about it was that it really was one of the first movies to depict just the uh, how hard it was for these guys. Well, apparently and it came out really... 1944. So, I mean, it was fresh yeah. in everybody's memory. Exactly. And, and actually one of the, one of the actual Doolittle Raiders uh, who, who survived, obviously uh, he was shot down over Germany and he was in that Stalag three uh, for the great escape. Uh, he was in, involved with uh, digging uh, the tunnel. Harry, um, he didn't escape through it, but he was in charge of that. He was on the Doolittle raid. But uh, yeah, it was one of the first movies that 30 Seconds Over Tokyo that really showed, like, for instance, when the guys got hurt, like, you know, typically they just kind of clutch their chests and this and that. But in, in 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, man, when they crash on the beach and they're coming out of the water, these guys, I mean, it was gritty. You could really feel their broken shoulders and their broken limbs. And it, it was it really stood out to me. Uh, that they took that chance. And as a matter of fact, uh, I was looking up and I, there was an article written uh, and right after it came out and it says, there surely will never be a more glorious 30 seconds over Tokyo, nor a more gallant men to carry it out. Yet war is not glamorous and no film has so far done more to illustrate what a slow process is victory. And I think that is a, uh, a tribute those guys took a chance um jeff have you have you seen that 30 seconds over tokyo yes multiple times and yeah. i'll tell you i you know i saw it as a kid and after visiting with you last month and you mentioning that i said man i need to go back and, and re-watch it i remember it being kind of long and as a kid you're like eh, you know um so yeah i went back and, and re-watched it and yeah what really uh impressed me and like Don pointed out, you know, it's 1944. This is a wartime production, right? Um, so to see these B20, the amount of B25s that they were using for filming, when I mean, I loved the training aspect of it. I loved that whole backstory uh, when they were. Uh, I want to say there was a, a time when they were actually at an airfield here in Texas, right? As part of the training, I, I think I, I can't recall. remember. Yeah. Clark Field, maybe, or something. I thought 
Um, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting to see kind of you, you really they really set the tone for, like you said, how difficult this mission was going to be. You know, it didn't start out on the aircraft carrier by any means. Yeah. Um, so it gives them time for some really good character development. And of course, Van, um, Van Johnson's, you know, he's a great actor, right? I mean, this guy fits the part so well. And um, but you really have time to really kind of get to know these guys and get connected with them enough to where you do have that connection when they you, know, you see their, their broken bodies and, and what it took to get the job done. And then, of course, the survivors coming home, some of them, you know, maimed. So, um, uh, yeah, I think it's really one of the top five to me wartime productions for sure. And yeah. what went into it from a from an advising perspective more than just propaganda, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Here's a quick, here's something we haven't done in a while. Um, this is great because I haven't seen the movie, so I won't even feel bad for not participating. But the three of you have seen it. Henry, I want to give you the first crack at it. Rotten Tomato score. What is the the main critic score and what is the audience score? So I'm just taking a I'm just taking a guess, right? Because I sure don't know. But well, if you knew, it wouldn't be a game, now would it? <laughs> uh, I'll say eighty-two and seventy-nine. Dennis. I'm going to go with the critic score of 86 and the crowd, the audience of 93. And Jeffrey. Well, I am notoriously horrible at these guesses. I always go the opposite of what I think it should be <laughs> because I think it's such a good movie. So most people won't like it. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to hover in the 65 to 70 range for both, even though I think it's better than that. <laughs> Now, interestingly enough, this movie came out in 1944, but it only has five top critic ratings in all that time. Wow. So some could say, well, that's the reason why, but this is the first time ever on this podcast with six reviews, 30 seconds over Tokyo, 100% with the critics. Wow. And, wow. With, and with the audience score of over 500 ratings, a solid 75%. Wow. So this movie apparently stands up and everyone who's seen it, with the exception of 25% of the weirdos in the audience, agree with you guys <laughs> that this is a fantastic movie. And so it's probably Is it one. possible, because I haven't seen it since I was a kid, can I find this thing on Netflix or Amazon Prime or any yeah, of that? Absolutely. I'm, I'm not going to be surprised if it's on YouTube. I well, was going to say, I think I streamed it on YouTube for like two or three I'm bucks. I'm looking right now. Yeah. 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 I want to. I got to rewatch it. This is making me want to see it again. Yeah, it's so good. You know, it's made off this book right here uh, by one of the pilots, Ted Lawson. It looks and like it's on Apple TV. Um, yeah, it looks like maybe that's who Van Johnson played, right? Dennis was. Yes, sir. That's right. Ted yeah. Lawson. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like it's streaming on Apple. Okay. And you can probably yeah. find some bootleg version on YouTube somewhere. And Spencer Tracy. Yeah. yeah. Who did Spencer Tracy play? Was I guess he would have been Doolittle, maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and he was, um, and Robert Mitchum, one of his first appearances. Yeah, this was made to comply with the uh, request to, yeah, you know, war materials. So printed during the war, thirty seconds over Tokyo. It's really good. I read it in a couple days, but. Um, now, if you had to pick like a favorite movie moment, what would you guys? I mean, I mine is rock solid, and no doubt what mine is. But I wonder what your guys' uh, movie moment. 
Hmm. I'll tell you what, while you're thinking about it, I'll... Uh, Please. I'll go. Mine is Empire of the Sun. Uh, have you guys seen that? Yeah, only and, but a long time ago. And it's the moment when um, Christian Bale's character, he's a young teenager, you know, he's a young boy, and he's idolized, idolized pilots his whole life. And here he is separated from his parents at the beginning, you know, 1940. And he's just uh, on his own and he's just moved from camp to camp and, and he's trying to survive and he's slowly losing his, his, his light, right? He's losing that inner light and he's starving. And there at the very end, he's just about lost hope. His face is gaunt. He's dragging his feet. And all of a sudden, the, the base he's at hit, gets hit by an air raid. And he runs to the top of this building. And of course, it's a Steven Spielberg movie. So John Williams is doing the music. And he gets to the top of the building. And right at that second, a P-51 comes ripping out. And the camera slow. I'm getting goosebumps right now even thinking about it. The camera slows down. And Christian Bale is almost level with the pilot on the top of this building as this guy is going across the airfield. And he's looking at him and the pilot looks over at him and he's strafing and at the end he yells P-51 Cadillac of the skies. <laughs> and it's just like this sweeping epic music. And every time I see that, I get goosebumps and it's just like, cause that was me, you know, that was like, I could just picture me. It was just an amazing moment. I remember that scene because that was what HBO uses their trailer that scene right there. I remember that phrase and that scene. And it's so funny. It's on the topic of movies, but kind of going back to what you're talking about growing up around a military base. Um, we spoke about this in the past, but when I moved to Ohio, I lived on Rickenbacker air force base, which at that time it was basically just a skeleton air force base. They threw some air shows and some planes would stop over every once in a while for refuels. But my brother had, a, was in a civil air patrol. And so he had a, he had a uh, pass to the base, which was great for, you know, freaking middle schooler. And he could take us. I'm in elementary school. So we get to go on the base and hey, there's a Sherman tank climbing and we're playing in Sherman tanks as a kid. We go to the PX where I bought my first cassette tape, which was Iron Maiden's Only the Good Die Young. We're buying <laughs> gas mask bags there. We're buying old M1 helmets. And of course now we're all outfitted. So when the rest of kids at our school who don't live near the base, they're playing guns with their their crap that their parents picked up from the army surplus store. We got the stuff right off the base, got our M16s and all that. Used to go to the, uh, get my hair cut there. Walked in, fifth grade, of course, Playboys all spread out on the table and all that stuff, which, you know, you don't want to look at. But, yeah, we spent a lot of time, and not only that, but because the base was mainly populated down World War II, outside of the base, because the houses we lived in was all military housing during the war, and then in the 80s sometime, they got bought out, and they made it just commercial, you know, low-income housing, you know, townhomes and, and you know, single-family homes you can rent. But they had the old movie theater, which was run down, the old hospital, all this military stuff from World War II. It was all abandoned and run down. And we all used to skateboard and uh, find open doors and skateboard down the hallways of these old hospitals and the old movie theater and all that stuff. And it was so damn cool just to think we got to grow up around that area. And as I was saying before, HBO at the time, Iron Eagle was all over um, all those like teenage uh military movies what was the one where they were at the boys school that got taken over by the terrorists and they're all um oh, the, taps 
No, not Taps. The other one, the one that had the kid. Red, who, Red Dawn. Well, Red Dawn was out at the time, but also the cat who went on to play in Lord of the Rings. He played. It was kind of like a generic version of um, Taps, but it was a boys' school, and then they get taken over by terrorists, and they have to save the day. And when you're like fifth grade out there playing guns, you're like reenacting all these movies. But uh, but for me, and this little word room because you you kind of sprung on us. What's our favorite scene? And I was thinking about it. And I think the one that gets me every time, and it's he's such a great actor, it's when Giovanni Ribisi, the medic in Save It Private Ryan, when he dies right after the German bunker raid. And that minute yeah. where they're all gathered around him and he's looking up, and, he, and that scene gets me every time. That's a damn good yeah. scene in that movie. Yeah, that he nailed it. Man. What about you, Henry? Man, I, I don't know that I can answer the question. I mean, there are too many... I got too many, you know. I mean, just so many scenes I loved. I couldn't pick one that when he's that, swimming okay, underwater in the opening credits of Thin Red Line. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw something at you. <laughs> what about you, Jeff? <laughs> you know, I'm, man, like I, I'm with Henry. I, I, maybe if I had a little time to prepare for something like that, but I'm going back through my head. I mean, there's so there are so many that. I, I wish I could. I wish I had like this elaborate, beautiful answer for this that everybody's like, oh. I I don't have. I cannot pinpoint one. I, I have so many that I'd like to maybe quick mention. Um, I'll I'll be a little cliche here, but I'll, I'll go to if we can call the Pacifica movie. There is one scene that there's just something about it that never gets old. And it's literally when they are on the Amtrak heading to Peleliu. You see it into the water. It's dark. You see them, you know, as it first starts, right? They just, they just kind of, they all get kind of jostled, you know? I mean, of course, it's, that's real stuff, right? They come in, the salt water comes up over the bow of this Amtrak, and it just goes from inside to outside these clamshell doors to this mayhem. And I, I don't know if it's the coloring the, in post editing or something, but the color of the water mixed with the the gray steel of the Amtraks, yeah. the the tan bobbling helmets, the sounds of the Maduses, Hellcats overhead, smoke everywhere on the beach. Like it's just simply exactly how I picture. It, can I Harlow. can I back up from that five seconds, Joe? Because that's a great. That's a great scene. Yeah. When when all the guys are in the in the belly of the LST, mm-hmm. and they start helping each other up into the up the tailgates, and although the one my dad was in was a two, and it didn't have a drop tailgate, but but they're all getting up in, and you hear those, you hear them cranking up those mm-hmm. two hundred fifty horsepower radial engines, because you know Amtrak's <laughs> had radial engines. Man, I love this. That was just, and you hear everyone just, <laughs> you know, they're all revving <laughs> up. Man, that just. It's like the beginning. It makes me think of my dad wrote about how the 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 whole exhaust or the whole cargo bay filled with exhaust fumes, right? You know, and then they open the the bow doors and the the light streams in with all the diesel fumes, and and then your scene, yeah, that was pretty powerful. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, and yeah, that is that's that the Amtrak's had radial engines. They were Continental six seventies. It's the same motor that they had in M three Stewarts. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same motor that they had in the Yellow Peril. 
the PT-19s. Mm-hmm. So these guys and load up. They, they <laughs> yeah. start off with some so carbon monoxide now, poisoning. <laughs> then they yeah, open they, up. Us. Then they hit the water. Then they get seasick. They throw up their steak and eggs, and now they got carbon monoxide poisoning. They're seasick. Right. Then they piddle around out there in circles for two and a half hours. Now they're cramped up. Their backs hurt. They can't move. They're seasick. They got carbon monoxide poisoning. And then they hit the beach and expect to run and live. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, that one just kind of gets me every time. You know, there's a couple scenes from Memphis Bell. There's a couple scenes from, from Sands of Iwo Jima. Um, I was just talking about this scene the other night from Patton where, you know, he's he's the repercussions of slapping the soldier mm-hmm. and he's not going to lead the boys in into Normandy. You know, that was given to, to Bradley and he's in this long haul and right. And, and man, like George C. Scott, I don't know if this scene ever happened. I don't know if these words were ever said by the real Patton, but I think it rings true that you know they that people say, and I believe it. George C. Scott was a better Patton than Patton, right? Um, but an entire world at war, and I'm left out of it. God will not permit this to happen. I will be allowed to fulfill my destiny. That scene gives me chills. Uh, there's there's a few from Patton that really kind of ring to his passion throughout history just the history of combat in general um you go back and read his poem from 1922 through a glass darkly uh if you read all whatever it is 24 stanzas if you don't get chills from that man you you you're not human um but yeah i mean there's dude there's you know there's scenes from 12 o'clock high that I'm like, oh, man, that was awesome. That was perfect. <laughs> like, I, I got too many. Dately. Did you see Unbreakable, either one of you? Any of you? Yeah, I did not. Yeah. I did not. There's a scene in there Jeff probably enjoyed, and that's when um, he was walking on the catwalk. Remember the Bombay doors were open? And they showed right. him like walking over the catwalk, and the camera's aiming down at his, his feet. I think he went out there to dislodge a bomb or something. It was, with the CGI and all that, it... You're like, holy hell. I mean, you feel like you're in that Bombay door with just the wind blowing in, and you're walking on that damn near a metal two by four it's insane like how right right minimalistic a lot of that crap was especially when it came to the airplanes it's like yeah absolutely gotta make i mean to me though i mean the catwalk scene from a bomber i mean you gotta you, you gotta go back to memphis bell right yeah cranking that we're not gonna die we're not gonna die we're not gonna die you know <laughs> i mean it's just that that bomber was just so blown apart and Talking to to Captain Morgan when the first time we met him, to be able to like, okay, how much of this? How much of this? And he said, guys, he said, you know, uh, we lost engines. We had a big chunk of the tail shot off. Um, they had a the whole tail was riddled with flak and bullets when when their tail gunner Johnny Quinlan their their only actual injury of all twenty five missions gets clipped in the kneecap. Right, like not even enough to warrant a band aid. Um, they had landing gear. They landed with flat tires that were punctured from flak and all this stuff. And and he told me and my dad. He said, you know, that movie was just the damage from all twenty five <laughs> missions put into one. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just everything <laughs> in one mission. But uh, yeah, Dennis, great question, man. My gosh, that's that was that's a hard one to answer, man. I'll, hey, I'll jump in too. You know, everybody talks about the first twenty minutes of Saving Private Ryan. The part that got me even more than that was the scene in Ramel at the end. Yeah. The yeah, combat, you know, where the, the 
a shell goes off or a hit goes off and the guy goes through the window just as the tiger tank's coming by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, and also when, when like, right, like rewind a few minutes before the, before the shooting starts and the tigers are, you know, they're coming yeah. down that, that little alleyway and the guy looks up through the window and you hear the, the wind, you know, and you see that murky, dusty window. You see that German soldier look down. You know, you see that peaked hat just silhouetted looking down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, oh, Jesus, man, they're about to be in it. Yeah. And yeah. then you can see from their perspective where they're in the foxhole looking up and mm-hmm. the ground, they can see the ground is yeah. shaking and it's falling down from the. And, and, and you know, like right before the tanks turn down the street, you hear them. Uh, mm-hmm. so, those tanks, those treads uh, grind so ominous. Just He's ominous. A puppy dog. He's a puppy. He's a puppy puppy. <laughs> what was it? Oh, there. He's a puppy. You can see the beagle ears. I think we'd be remiss in throwing a topic to save a private Ryan uh, to, you know, we need to mention the passing of Tom Sizemore. Yeah, good yeah. point. And, you know, people who never felt the weight of a M1 helmet, they would kind of laugh. Because I think Tom Sizemore does it in the scene, I think, um, when they're one of the other guys, they end up throwing their helmet at him because they're guns are gen. They're throwing a helmet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Helmets are damn heavy. And you, you clock somebody just just in the right spot on their head, you'll you'll take them out. But, yeah, um, I'm sure everybody knows. But for those of you who don't, Tom Sizemore, Save a Private Ryan actor who, um, sorry, who was bright, st- uh, 1990 star, burned out under the weight of his own domestic monitor. we got to include all that horrible stuff. But the actor suffered from a um, brain aneurysm on February 18th at his home in Los Angeles. He died in his sleep on Friday at the hospital in Burbank, California, his manager said. Uh, Sizemore became a star with acclaimed appearances in Natural Born Killers, the cult classic crime thriller Heat, but serious substance. Uh, oh, Heat. Uh, let's not forget, even though the movie's not that great, he did a great role in uh, Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So he's in Pearl Harbor and Saber Private Riot both. Let's not forget Colonel McKnight. Black Hawk Down. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Another great movie. That How old was he, Don? He was only 61. Damn. I tell you, the older I get, the younger old That's gets. young, man. Yeah. That's too close to me. Yeah. That is young. Brain aneurysm. So, um, you know, thoughts Can I mention the, because uh, we were talking about this before we came over. Yeah, to go the, ahead. Um, yeah, I, that scene from the Pacific um, you know, my, my history with, uh, working EMS in 21, 23 years and then my battles with PTSD, man, seeing, um, that, uh, was it Joe Mazzello? Yep. Yeah. Played my yeah. dad. Yeah. He played your dad in the movie, in the, the show. Uh, I man, know more as a kid from Jurassic back, Park, but go ahead. Yeah, exactly. But when he comes off the ship and, he, and he's, you know, he's just haggard and, He's got that stare, and uh, man, ooh, he pulls it off. He pulls it off, and that is like one of the most memorable scenes. Um, I just remember him looking at the, the the Red Cross ladies like he couldn't he couldn't imagine like what are you doing? Like it, it reminded him of a world that he heard of, mm-hmm. and it reminded him of some place that he had heard of, and he was never going to see again. And he just couldn't contemplate. Man, and he said no words. He said no words. If, if I can add to that, stared. Dennis, that 
so I remember my dad and me talking about that when I was a kid because the part of that that he remembered the most, of course, he, it's in the, his book, but mm-hmm. we're the lieutenant, the freshly starched, freshly shaven, and of course, I've never seen a dead combat. Mac, you know, and he's standing there, like, okay, Sonny, let's go move out. And it's very obvious that this lieutenant is fresh out of yes. officer training school or officer candidate school. And I remember my dad telling me how he just looked at him. He and Snafu both just looked at him incredulously. Like, you know, it was just, it was that moment of stop-start comprehension that this guy hadn't even heard a shot fired. Did he really just say that? To, you know, and and then yeah. the, he, he remember him describing to me how the, he just looked at the guy, not like he wanted to start a fight, but the lieutenant just kind of looked down like he, he knew. He These saw something. These guys had been through it. Mm-hmm. He saw it. He saw it. He he had no combat experience, but he saw something in your dad's face and snafu, and he was he was alarmed. They they did a great job with that scene. Mm-hmm. You're you're that's a good one for you to pick up on, man. Because yeah, they when we were leading up to it and telling them stuff and being interviewed, they listened to us on that one um, and a lot of stuff too. But I'm just yeah, they really got that. Well, and also sure. let's not. Overlooked the scene in the uh, mittens line at the college. Well, surely the Marine Corps had to teach us something. Oh my gosh, that was powerful. That that's another one I remember hearing firsthand. Yeah, I love that. You know, I I think you know the only thing with that when he said, "Lady, they taught me how to kill jabs." He he like Joe and Joe did a great job in that scene, but he leans over and says, "They taught me how to kill jabs." I got pretty damn good. I mean, my dad when he said it, he said it really loud. Because the girl was kind of starting to embarrass him and starting to titter, and you know, didn't they teach you anything? You know, and he, man, he unloaded. Like they taught me how to kill Japs, and I got pretty and damn said good just, at like everything stopped. Mm-hmm. Wow, man. You know, another scene that really gets me is when uh, Akak uh, asks uh, your dad, "You got to watch." You know, you remember that scene, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> Wake yeah. me up in 30 minutes. <laughs> Wake me up in 30 minutes. And that look. 20 minutes. <laughs> 20. That look, um, the, the his men would have died for him willingly without a question. Yeah. You know? And it was just that, that love on their faces to see him. And it was just, man, that, so powerful. That's probably one of the most quoted scenes by me at an event but stand around i just pull the patch of grass sit down and lay down why stand when you can sit why sit when you can lay why lay when you can sleep so good <laughs> did he really say that and i don't know I, I think that i think that was the writers that mm. could have been a very common one of those common things that went around the court at the time too that just may have been yeah. one of those one yeah. of those common sayings that they included in, in the thing. But yeah, I, I definitely say that one a lot. Just people be standing around, I just lay on the ground. <laughs> pull up some pull up I like some the ground. way Gunny uh, kind of joined in with him at the end. Oh, yeah. You know, never walk when you can sit, never sit when you can sleep, or, you know, whatever yep. the actual. <laughs> Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> so, pipe boys. all going to keep me comfortable. I got a dog. His name's Deacon. I was talking to Sledgehammer. <laughs> you still pipe boy, stay alert. Woof. <laughs> Ball peen hammer. Like a little hammer. <laughs> Thanks, Sledgehammer. 
All right, snafu. Shit. <laughs> ass. F up. <laughs> That's funny because Brendan Fletcher, or I think, is it Brendan somebody? I, I don't want to. Don, was that the guy's name who played Bill Layden? Uh, I can look. He played um, in. Um, De- he played Dexter in. Fletcher or Brendan Fletcher? He played in the TV series, too. Um, I met him on one of the We Happy Few podcasts. We did a watch along. We did Dennis, really nice guy. Um, but it's cool. He was chosen for that role because he is such a great actor. He did such a great job. But the real Bill Laden was a big guy. Man, he was six foot two. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm looking. Keep on talking. I'm seeing this picture. I'm just trying to find the actors. <clears throat> man, like- and you know that one scene in that tent. In Walking Point, where (laughs) (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Man, we—I can't believe we got this far. Oh, speaking of that, the director of Walking Point just texted me. That's funny. Um, That's cool. I can't believe we haven't talked about. Band of Brothers, yeah. Well, real quick, we're on the Pacific. After reading your dad's book, China Marine, I understand why they did it. Because they're reflecting how things happen. But it's like, now that I get back and watch it, it's like the whole thing of him walking off the train without saying bye to Snafu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that then, always bugged me. And then you find out, well, that never happened because your dad was sent off to China. And, <laughs> and so... Somebody... Know, who was and I? Jeff wants to get on to Band of Brothers, and I hear that. Um, but somebody it may have been in a podcast with Bruce McKenna. He said that he had talked to a Marine Corps general who referred to that very scene, and he said, "Okay, you guys did a really good job on this thing." Because he said, "You know that scene where Sledge is getting off the train and Snafu Shelton is, or, or how, which one was the Snafu, Snafu was getting was... off the sl- uh, yeah, Snafu was getting off. Yeah, and Snafu Sledge was asleep. asleep. Yeah, because yeah. he was New Orleans. My dad would have been mobile. So yep. yeah, yeah. And so he said, and, and he just looks at Sledgehammer lying there asleep, and he doesn't wake him up. He just looks at him, and then walks on off the train to begin his life. He said that right there told me you guys got it right. Instead of waking him up, and hey man, it was nice knowing you. You know, he just looks at him and leaves him to sleep and moves on well it never occurred yeah. to me until just now but he probably realized after all the shit they've been through don't don't wake up a guy if he has the opportunity to get a good 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 sleep in yeah that, that's what i always thought too yeah like just let him rest there wasn't anything that they could have said that would have yeah conjured up what they were feeling or what they had going on in their head anyway it wasn't even worth it yeah and uh point. one part that always makes me uh cry is when is when it shows your dad uh, and your your grandfather out hunting at the end, and your dad is no. just like, I just can't, I can't do it, you know. And it's just like that, just oh, there. Ooh, it gets me. There were stories very similar to that in the Band of Brothers spinoff books, with guys who were avid hunters before they ever went to war, and they came back, and they're just like, it's not a fair fight. I know what it's like to be that deer, and they just could never bring themselves to hunt ever again. Yeah, that's me. I don't. I don't hunt. Uh, I was never in combat or anything like that. But I definitely saw hundreds of people die in in the emergency room, all ages, and uh, circumstances. And I just, uh, I just, I just couldn't see anything else die. Yeah. 
you know, I just, I just could not, it just made me sick to my stomach, um, even to think of it, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I just really appreciated that scene because I could feel it and it just, oh, I knew, I knew how that felt. And I was just, oh, I just, I was so thankful they put that in there instead of whitewashing it. You know, I, I'm, and I don't even know if it happened, but it's, it kind of spoke true for my own grandfather. And I felt like it kind of represented him too, in a way, coming back from Iwo Jima and all his buddies getting killed. And, uh, you know, I was talking to, uh, I don't want to get off onto, I know we're talking about movies and stuff. But, oh, go ahead. We got time. Yeah, but, okay, well, you know, I was explaining to my uh, my mom and dad about the the gravity of what my grandpa Lemke experienced on the gunboat there at Iwo Jima, and I says, you know, when you're a marine or you're a soldier, uh, many times, not all the time, but many times, your your whole purpose is to advance. So you know, you you advance cover to cover, and, and you're moving, and a guy gets hit. Sometimes you don't even know that one of your buddies got hit. You're advancing and you keep moving, and graves, the, the medics come up and they evacuate them. You don't even see it. And I was explaining to my mom that, you know, on the gunboat, you know, their buddies were just blown to pieces and they had to carry on and walk through all of this, this just gore and their body parts and their limbs and all of this. And they had to stay there. And then Leo Bedell, the engineering officer, told me, you know, four months later, the rest of the crew had been given survivors leave, but he had to stay. He was the only one left. And uh, he, he said that four months later, they'd go through storms and they'd be down in the galley and the water seeping through the welds would be, it would just be blood. It would just be blood pools and the, underneath the bottom of the ship just sliding around all the blood from all their dead shipmates. And I, I think that's, whenever I saw that scene from your dad there on hunting and just, he just couldn't bear the thought of just, taking a life one more life you know it was just i don't know it really spoke to me yeah and i don't even know if it happened but i just appreciated that they put that in there and showed that well they there's a couple areas in the longest day that i just finished reading and that's one of the things they're talking about is when you're driving the the landing crafts or any of the you know smaller vehicles out there and you see a landing craft get hit by a, a mortar or shell what have you and the guys fly out and they're in the ocean and they're stop help help you can't stop because you got so many vehicles and they're talking about how they just had to look away grin and bear it and just keep on trucking because you've got the advance coming in you can't stop to pick these guys up you're going to bottleneck the whole advance and then once you got on the beach the infantry guys had to deal with the same thing someone gets hit around you if you stop to try to pick them up you're increasing your chances of getting hit you just got to keep moving forward like you said their whole objective is just to keep advancing forward goodness gracious on a lighter note, you want to you, you want to segue into Band of Brothers. I was on YouTube the other night, and the Ron Livingston DVD, you know, recording from the Band of Brothers box set. Did you guys ever see that? No. If you get out your Band of Brothers box set and go to the the special features that um, during the re during the whole thing, HBO took Ron Livingston aside, gave him a camera, said, "I want you to record boot camp, yeah, record yeah. your entire experience." Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember seeing it a long time ago. And I remember his first day there, no one told the cadre that he's going to have his camera. And his sergeant jumps his ass, and it's our very own Freddie Joe Farnsworth. <laughs> and I went back and watched this thing, and Freddie Joe was in this quite a bit. 
the young Freddie Joe. And it's it's funny to see him back then and the way he was talking to them. And there's a lot of him getting up in uh, Ron Livingston's ass throughout this thing. So if you want to see a younger Freddie Joe just crawling up these guys' ass, go watch the uh, Ron Livingston uh, behind the scenes when they're going through boot camp and trying on the wardrobe and going through jump school and all that. Freddie Joe's in quite a bit of it. It's, it's quite entertaining now that we've had him on the show and we know him. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think there's a good chance he, he's going to watch this or, or listen to this. So we had to have some kind of like, man, you know that one scene where he comes up on a white horse? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fat boy. <laughs> Come on, right. fat boy. Come on, fat boy, let's go. But, you know, uh, speaking of Band of Brothers, though, I think this is a good time to, to bring it up. Man, had an unbelievably amazing time last week being on We Happy Few. This is, you know, th- this is like old news for, for Henry, right? He, he's been on there 6,000 times, and, and these are his friends. This was the first experience for me. And, you know, all I kept hearing, oh, man, Matt Leach, you're going to love Matt Leach. And, you know, we've all known Leighton now for so long and and was just, I, I don't know, man. It was just the most fun I've ever had. And, and I just felt like we we've, we got right into it. Like I was talking with you guys, yep. like, like it, like I had a rapport with, with these two guys already and, and man, so yeah, um, that was a lot of fun. That was just a lot of fun. So hopefully I'll go back and watch that or listen to it. Um, well, that's the beauty of this hobby, this community is the four of us can be complete strangers, show up somewhere on happenstance, find out we all have a passion for this hobby and we would all just sit there. So it doesn't matter who it is. Most of the time, if they have the same passion you do, you're going to fit right in and, and things are just going to roll and it's going to go great. Right. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, we could be talking all night about, about band of brothers and it, and it looks like, uh, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned walking point earlier. It looks like our director of walking point just joined in watching us. So that's pretty cool. Appreciate shout that's out to cool. RJ. We've had him on the on the show before, um, but you know there's so much with Band of Brothers, and and there's so many. When I think of Band of Brothers, I still think of how my wife reacts to it a lot. You know, because we talk about this, right? We watch it every every year when it's cold. Mm-hmm. You know that that late November, early December, coming up on Christmas, coming up on the anniversary of the you know the Hitler's counteroffensive in the Ardennes, and it's just the perfect time of year to watch it, and you know, of course, there's the one that she's always like, "Woo, yeah," <laughs> and it's when uh, when Major Winters calls out Captain Sobel towards the end there. Yep, when he's just kind of walking by, salute the rank, man, Captain Salute's Sobel. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know that gets her. She just, oh yeah, loved it because she just hates Sobel, right? Um, so that's that's always a good. I thought that was a pretty good touch because. You know, Captain Sobel is such an intricate character, and, you know, uh, the poor guy ended his own life, you know, I don't think very long after the end of the war, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about this guy, and we all love to hate him, right, but from that garrison perspective, no better company commander for those guys at that time. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, and, and I mean... Yeah, and he galvanized them. Yeah, he he right. really he really did. And you know, to give credit where credit's due, had had roles been reversed, right? Had it been Lieutenant Winters 
in charge of Easy Company in the training phase at Tagoa, and then it's Captain Sobel, you know, that gets assigned to them because, you know, uh, what was his name? Lieutenant Meehan didn't didn't survive the jump. Yep. Two, two totally different worlds, right? Like it's just a, it's a matter of timing for those guys, and that's kind of that aura I think that those boys have in in that particular unit. They just it was timing, and, and I, I think we probably overlooked the fact that. Sobel was part of that process. He he was part of, like like Henry said, galvanizing them and making them who they were, but also realizing what they were lacking and who they needed, the type of leader they needed to kind of take them to the next level. Sobel was that perfect garrison, you know, in the rear with the gear, <laughs> all those, you know, <laughs> Rear, rear astronaut, the REMFs, Remf. the REMFs, the Pogues, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> he was perfect for that. And, and of course, then then so on and so on. So well, that's, a, um, that's the nice thing about the Band of Brothers spinoff books. It's just about every person who did one after the series came out and a book came out made sure to make sure that their audience of that particular book knew that they all knew and they all acknowledged that they wouldn't have been at six as successful as they were if it wasn't from him. And so when it's you read a lot of those, Yeah. When you read a lot of those books, they'll there'll be at least one paragraph talking about, hey, the guy was a pain in our ass, but we would have not made it through if it wasn't for him. And he was our training and he is the reason we were as good as we were. And yeah. they all had to sit his after the book came out and the, and the series came out, they had to, you know, kind of sit his daughter down and tell her the same thing. Like, look. Yeah, man, that that guy can you imagine? I mean, so I think it was was it Brothers in Battle, Best of Friends? Yeah. It was the, the Garnier and Heffron book mm-hmm. where they really go into a lot of that Sobel post-war and what it was like for his... Oh, man. You guys know how he passed away, right? Huh? You know how he passed away, right? Yeah. He, he tried, well, uh, oh, he tried to kill himself, yeah. but he survived. Yeah, but he ended up passing away in, I think, a sort of a hospital-type atmosphere. But, yeah, he ended up trying to... He had a failed suicide attempt. Dang. Yeah, my mom feels that's that you know Iwo Jima's played a big part in my grandpa because my grandma died and then my grandpa killed himself. But uh, you know, it, you know, she was she often wondered and that was the reason that she had me do my own research into grandpa's past World War II service um, because she felt that it had really wore him down, and uh, grandma was his rock, you know, and that was taken away. Yeah, so I can totally understand. And not to mention, these cats were so young. I mean, you hear all the time that your teenage, early high school, your early adult, those are your formative years. I mean, a lot of stuff that happens to you or the things you go through, you know, make you the person you grow up to be. And the the amount of atrocity they witnessed and participated in, it's just, I don't know, it's just mind-boggling. Well... Sticking with with Iwo Jima, I mean, I know it flopped and all, but man, I think Flags of Our Fathers is a must watch. Uh, I think Letters from Iwo Jima is a must watch. I know you can't kind of mention one I, without I, the other. Were those ever sold as a box set? If not, they should have been before DVDs went to the way of the dodo. I mean, I got both of them, but I think that would have been a great box set. That would have made sense, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's not like you can't appreciate one without the other because you certainly can i mean they, they are they are definitely standalone right um but uh of course same director clint eastwood and and, and all that but um 
it, it is definitely letters from Iwo Jima. I will say was powerful enough to you almost almost <laughs> sympathize. <laughs> yeah, sure. With at least some elements of the Japanese garrison that was on Iwo Jima. Well, and we've brought almost. that up in the past as well. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that's one of the endearing things of that movie is we kind of phrase here it took away the boogeyman aspect of the enemy and we've talked Absolutely. before that was another great thing about midway midway did the same thing they took the boogeyman aspect away from the enemy despite you know what they're especially when it comes down to the infantry men they're just don't fall in what the empire is telling them to do well you guys remember what shifty said right about the germans mm -hmm. any other circumstances they might have been good yeah. friends they might have gone fishing together or whatever yep I kind of felt that same way watching letters from Iwo Jima. It was kind of like, man, these guys are just doing what they're told, and they're on this island. They don't want to be there, but you know, they're doing what they're supposed to do, and they're protecting their home. It was like, man, that was powerful. Yeah, and especially so, having a grandfather on the receiving end of of that, you know, from those guys. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and. Uh, to to kind of go back with our wartime production theme that we kind of kicked it off with with thirty seconds over Tokyo, some great ones from the Pacific that I think of, um, you know Guadalcanal Diary, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, oh, it to me, if it's got Richard Jackal in it and it's a black and white war film, it's going to be a good movie, right? Like it just seems like that guy's military acting career. He's like the seventeen-year-old kid in like every single war war movie from the forties. I mean, it's unbelievable. He's probably been in like eighty-some films about World War II, and it's like he's the same character, right? But um, Guadalcanal Diary, of course, he plays Johnny Chicken Anderson. Uh, I know Saints of Iwo Jima is not necessarily a wartime production. That's forty-nine, but you know, a lot of people say that that movie saved the United States Marine Corps. And, and I don't know, and Henry might have a little bit more in-depth knowledge on it, but from what I understand is after 45, right, after the end of the war, naturally, it, we downsize, right? Um, the question came up, as it has multiple times before and, and since, is there a need for the Marine Corps? And obviously anybody – no, no, hang on. I'm actually not – I'm not talking trash about the Marines. <laughs> It's it's a fair question, right? Um, because we started blending in ways that you know. You look at it now. I, I I'd love for somebody to really answer the question: What is it that the Marine Corps can do that there's not somebody in another branch of service that can do that? I honestly, tell me, show me. Um, not saying that there's not in some way a need for them, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, it seems to me that it's just more legacy. Because it's not so much what they can do now; it's what they've done. You know, it's what they've always done. It's that spirit. It's it's the core, right? It's the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. I get it. Um, but even as early as the late '40s, uh, when you're looking at budgeting, even though you know it's not like they have a huge budget, right? But no, aren't um, they? Don't they have the smallest budget out of all the branches of the military? Right. I mean, they are. They're a department of the Navy. You know, so uh, it. There's, I don't know. It's it's strange, and maybe I don't understand because maybe I'm a prima donna army soldier that had everything brand new twenty years before the Marine Corps got it. And there's so many facets in the army now that can do anything that that I just don't see it even today. But so they wanted to show 
what the Marine Corps really contributed in World War II, which I think is interesting because since then it has, you know, it's the Army and the European theater and the Marines saved the day in the Pacific, right? And, and I've mentioned this before, even though the, the Army fielded four times as many divisions in the Pacific that the Marine Corps did and had more island invasions than well, sure, the they Marine were Corps did. How many times bigger, you know? Right, yeah. It was 99 six divisions, divisions to six. Strength. But but for people who don't know that, um, mm. it's the Marine Corps that saved the, the world in the Pacific, right? It was the Marines versus the Japanese and the Army versus the Germans. And it's just such a misnomer that it's – it's almost embarrassing to hear people say that. So, um, but in in the early '40s, they really, or I mean, I'm sorry, in the late in the late '40s, after you know the early stages in in peacetime America after the Second World War, uh, there was an effort being made to kind of save the Marine Corps. And what better way to do that than, of course, talk about what they did at some of the bloodiest campaigns, Tarwa and the Iwo Jima. Of course, they're going to show the flag raising, and they got to put the biggest name in lights. To make people go see this movie, who is going to save the day? Sergeant John M. Stryker, the world's oldest, you know, buck sergeant in the Marine Corps, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I think about that. So, John, I mean, John Wayne's forty-two in that film, you know, and that's really kind of his career was still kind of on the up in the late forties, right? I mean, he saved the day as a tall Texan in, in early Western films, and and he's dabbled, of course, in other genres, and that's great. He's just always John Wayne; you can't change it. It doesn't matter. Like he's sorry. Like the quiet man, you can't do it. But like you're John Wayne, right? You, anyway, <laughs> um, so he was just one of those guys that you don't see. It's like Elvis. You when you see Elvis in a film, doesn't matter what the film is. It's Elvis. Like he, he can play whatever he wants. You can dress him in anything. It's Elvis. Yeah, you, it you don't be, change him. It could be 1843. He can be in the in out in the West with his 1970s bouffant and, <laughs> and sideburns. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about Frankie and Johnny on the steamboat. I get it. But um, yeah, so I think it's interesting that movie just beyond being a movie, having um, those motivations to to save the Marine Corps. And as far as I know, I know my brother had to watch it in boot. And as far as I know, I've never been told different that you still watch that when you go through Marine Corps boot camp. It's what you do. And I, I've, I haven't been told otherwise. I'm not saying yay or nay. It's just to my knowledge, I've heard that, that every Marine watches that film in boot camp. And rightly so. I can guarantee you that he wasn't the only one because it's 19, what was it, 1949 they were filming that? Right. Yeah, Sands was 49. So I'm sure a lot of the extras were there too, but, you know, Ira Hayes is in that movie. And we're talking about PTSD. Could you imagine? I'm sure, once again, I'm sure there's plenty of people on the set, the extras, but in this particular conversation, we're talking about Ira Hayes because we know how he ended up passing and the PTSD that he dealt with. Could you imagine surviving through that and then a few short years being on a movie set? portraying probably the worst time of your life that just happened all i don't know four and a half years ago and it, and wow. if you google ira hayes and sansa iwo jima there's a shot <laughs> there's a shot and um ira hayes is sitting there in a foxhole and there's two other guys i'm not filming you can see the boom mics in the background it's just a in-between shot and the two other actors are smiling at the camera and, and ira still has that thousand yards there he's just staring off into the horizon while the other two actors in a foxhole are looking at the camera and you can see the boom mic and all that. Even, even on that set, just looking at this picture of him, he's just, well, he's a thousand miles away. He did not have anything good to say about that film. Yeah. 
and I, and you can, you can probably Google that easy enough. And he's not the only one that portrayed himself yeah. in that film, right? John Wayne hands the flag to, uh, Gagnon, uh, Bradley and, and Ira Hayes. And of course, Harry Schreier plays himself, Lieutenant that raised the first flag, right? Yep. there. And then, uh, there's the conversation between, uh, Colonel Shoup on Tarawa, uh, Colonel Shoup playing himself, the, the, sur- the only surviving Medal of Honor recipient talking to, uh, the uh, battalion commander of two eight. Um, the name is escaping me. He's got a big handlebar mustache. Oh, Henry, help me out. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, he's walking up and down the beach with a with a shotgun. Um, oh man, sorry, oh, I don't know that gosh. much about eight, Eighth Marines. Uh, Red Beach three, Major Crow, Major Crow. Um, yeah, Major Crow and Shoop have a conversation as themselves. Um, you know, communicating on, on Tarawa. So there was a lot of guys basically playing themselves. Yeah. Like Don said, only four, five, six short years later. But yeah, I know Ira Hayes said that was, that wasn't at all what it was like, right? Well, of course not. It's 1949 and it, it, it had a purpose. It had a, it had a bigger purpose than Ira Hayes's war. Yeah. Right. It's just crazy to think though. just, Guys are probably just getting past some of the nightmares and and maybe starting to compartmentalize some of their memories. And hey, come on down, let's uh let's relive it for six months while we shoot this film. Right. Well, I yeah. need the money, so I guess I'll be there. Dennis, do you have any other films that you wanted to hit? Oh no, that's well, you know, like just you know, of course, they were expendable. Uh, I love that one. Um, back to our uh, baton with uh, Robert Taylor. That one was <laughs> that was really pretty gritty. Um, have you guys seen that one with mm. Robert Taylor? No. Oh yeah. If I have, it's been so oh, long I don't remember. Man, you guys still holds slacking. up. It still holds up, man. Maybe we need to come up with like a to top ten night um, nineteen forty five to nineteen fifty nine World War Two movies that people must watch. <laughs> All the the classics. Yeah. We're always talking about books. Speaking of books, uh, oh, go ahead, Jeff. No, oh, I was gonna say, uh, what's the one with Errol Flynn? And that uh, probably already sounds hokey, but Objective it's actually, Burma. Uh, Objective Burma. Yeah. That's a great it's film, so man. Yeah, it's a great film. Haggard. Uh, they're all getting malaria, and they're yep. selling. They're selling it. Oh, yeah, that was horrible. Flynn. I thought Flynn. That's that was a great. That was a great mm-hmm. part for him. Hey man, one of the, can I throw a Flynn movie in there? Yeah, it's not World War Two. It's literally one of the first movies I ever watched. Dawn Patrol with David Niven. I've never seen it. I mean, I was like four years old, and I remember it coming on our little black and white set. And I loved World War One airplanes before yeah. I graduated to World War Two airplanes. And I just remember my brother and me. He was probably eleven, and I remember us watching Dawn Patrol. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to watch that one. I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I haven't seen it since I was probably four. So, yeah. but <laughs> how about they died with their boots on? Errol Flynn. Is, oh, yeah. Esther, the seventh Cav. Yeah. Olivia de Havilland. I think, wasn't she in that? Olivia de Havilland. Or was that um, Joan Fontaine? Was it? Yeah. Olivia de Havilland, I think. Yeah, those are good. I mean, Battle of the Bulge, right? Uh, I love, I love Battle of the Bulge. I watch that every year. Midway, 
Tora, Tora, Tora. I mean, there's some British. Oh, yeah, guitar. man, I love Tora, Tora, Tora. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. Because they were speaking Japanese. or just added this mm-hmm. degree of realism to mm-hmm. it. <clears throat> right. Yeah, it seemed like that was one of the first ones to do that. Yeah. It pretty awesome. Then there's all the submarine movies, Das Boot, with the German U-boat commander. Man, that was yeah. What's rough? I had my son, and I just watched that here a few months ago. Yeah. I couldn't get his into Stalingrad, though, even though it was Wolfgang Peterson mm-hmm. or whoever, the same director. Mm-hmm. You know, Stalingrad just wasn't, to me, just there's something about it didn't. What about Enemies uh, at the Gates? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Sniper, the Sniper Duel. What I I didn't see that movie until probably the mid two thousands, and what I kind of liked from it because Call of Duty uh, World at War was out uh, right around that time, and when you're playing through the campaign mode, and I had not seen that movie yet, you're you're pinned down, you're inside this fountain, you get a gun, and you snipe the guy in the taking a shower, and he sniped the other guys, and it's right out of that movie. And you're like, oh shit, that's how they got it from. And that's such a good game. Too bad, you know, it's unplayable nowadays. I almost wish they would come out with that because, you know, Call of Duty's been nothing but putting out the same game for the last 15 years. Too bad they won't re reboot World at War because that was a fantastic game, especially running across the airfield at Pelu and all that stuff. Fantastic game. But, hey, uh, hey, Jeff, I got a question for you. Ah. What you reading? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's a quick answer because I'm taking this one nice and slow. Of course, I'm reading with the old breed, and I cannot wait. So I think I've, I've sent you guys some pictures before, right? So uh, our librarian will put out an email to all the teachers and say, fill out this little form, tell us what you're reading and what you're listening to, and then she'll have somebody come around and staple it up outside your door on your classroom. So uh, naturally, what I'm listening to is always going to be what's the scuttlebutt because it's amazingly free ma- uh, marketing, right? Absolutely. Um, but I can't wait. I can't wait till she posts with the old breed. It, it should be up in the next couple of days. I'll send you all a picture of what Mr. Capseta uh, is reading. Um, but before we get beyond this, I wanted to talk a little bit real quick before we go about what I'm drinking. Can I? Can I do that now, Don? Hey Jeff, I got a question for you. What you drinking? <laughs> what you drinking? <laughs> well, it's cold now, <laughs> but uh, so. Guys, I, I had this opportunity. I connected with with a with a with a new friend over in Germany now. And uh, if you follow him on on Instagram, and you should, if you don't, you really need to uh, look at uh, at uh, World War II Wayfinder, World War II historian. This guy has some amazing content out there. Struck up a conversation. He's going to be on the podcast one day when we can get past the, you know, he's like sixty time zones away. We have to figure that out. No, we right? can make but, it work. We'll make it work. We always do. Um, just in our conversation, just nonchalantly, oh, you know, by the way, I'm the CEO of Warbird Coffee. And I went, what? Whoa. Never heard of it. Warbirds oh, and coffee. Two of your favorite things. and coffee. And so just showed up today. And so I pulled this, this bag out of the mailbox, right? It's like crammed in there. And if y'all know my wife, she gets like, I don't know, 30 Amazon packages a day. And you right? get so like I didn't even one book every six months right. yeah. or a sticker <laughs> yeah. from me. <laughs> right. She said, whatever. Uh, come on. Okay. Uh, 28 packages. I, I think I sent you a, anyway. a, an art printer too, didn't I, Jeff? I mean, at some point I, I maybe, I don't know. You, yeah, but you, it, you sure did. It, you sure it, did. He didn't get it until three months later. Cause I got lost in all her Amazon boxes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah, I don't even look at the name on it. It's, this is this is my wife. So I'm like, that's an interesting feeling package, though, right? I'm walking into the house. I'm like, man, something smells amazing out in the front yard. This smells really. And I, I like didn't even dawn on me, right? So I put the package up on the bar, and I'm walking in. And I'm like, I smell it in the house. And I'm looking at the front, like, what? She bought a bunch of flowers the other day. Like, what am I smelling? And then I got closer, and I looked down, and it had my name on this package. Warburg Coffee. Dude, you can smell it from the, the sealed package. And then it's in, you know, the clear, like, the bubble wrap, sealed plastic wrap after that. And you could still smell this amazing stuff. So he gave me uh, two sacks of this stuff. You get on his website. They've got some amazing marketing tools, and and I just want to read you their commitment. So the Warbird Coffee Company, their commitment, they have a clear objective. That is to give back to those who work so hard preserving our aviation heritage from nice. World War II. These aircraft are unique reminders of a time when young men and women would place themselves at the mercy of the enemy and all too often made the ultimate sacrifice in the name of freedom. I can't wait to talk about this at my air show in less than two weeks. Amazing coffee. John, thank you so much. We've got to get you Henry and Don's uh, address. Yeah, I, I can't wait to cross them. I mean, you know this guy knows his stuff. He's got the square D, the bloody 100th bomb group on this bag, mm -hmm. right? I've got another one. So what I'm drinking is, uh, let's see, 47 coffee. Got a beautiful P forty seven on. Oh, P forty seven. Does he have one for the Corsair? I I would hope so. <laughs> if not, I think we need to make that happen. So, um, yeah, I, I I've been waiting. I think I've been I'd waiting like to WTSP this. flavored coffee would be fantastic too. Well, well in, I like the way Don thinks. That's, and that's a WTSP cool. cup would be amazing. The the Lucky Strike, the little little. I mean, that would be great. So, um, it, it's great. I mean, I you know when I took the first sip. I did the little swirl. I was wafting. The, it was resonating like gazelles running through the savanna when I was listening to it. I mean, it was. <laughs> you know the only thing you're coffee, missing, John. You know the only thing you're missing to make that coffee taste better. One of these bad boys. You need to get one of these. Of course, he's gonna. Yep. Make a of coffee. Gonna rub that in. Got to get yourself a nice Corningware <laughs> milk glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at their website. I like the uh, pinup girl shirts they have, and they got as a hot as a baseball cap snob that I am. They have some fantastic looking caps on there too. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of fantastic looking caps, look at that bad boy, huh? Yeah. Oh, that is sharp. I do like the new. Let me see the back of it, Don. Just snap back. Snap back. Okay. Let me address something real quick. As I said, I'm a hat snob, and when I went to make these hats, there was already flat bills. Um, as a hat snob, I don't like shitty hats. And somebody who worked in radio, I've been given a lot of crappy promotional products. And when it comes to baseball caps, you want a bill that has at least six or more lines of threading in it. If it has three or less, that is an indicator that someone has cut corners. The bill is not going to hold a fold. If you like a nice folded bill, it's going to, it's fl floppy and crappy. So I say all that to say this. The people that we use to print our hats, they had three styles. They have these flat bill hats, which, by the way, the, the quality of it is fantastic. They had trucker hats, which I made as well. And then they have what they call the dad hats. And those are the only hats they had on their website that had a, a fold, kind of like uh, Henry's hat. 
But looking at them, they have low like flat this, crowns. They got the Velcro back, and they had three lines of stitching. And from my experiences, those are like the hats that marketing companies like print their business name to give away at trade shows that people put on and they throw it. I, I just can't see putting our logo on there and charging someone $25 for that hat. So I didn't even put it up there. Hopefully at some point they will make some nicer hats available for those of you who don't like flat bills. There's a good chance that the flat bills will hold a fold if you put one in there. But um, that's so for the people wondering why we don't have, you know, we just have the trucker hats and the flat bill hats. I just couldn't see asking you guys to pay that kind of money for what I anticipate to be a very low quality hat just by from what I know about hats. So, so that's that. But you can get the hats, the shirts, um, towels. And I'll get some coffee mugs on there, too. Just head over to WTSPWWII.com. Click on the uh, Back the Attack link at the top, and that'll take you to our merch store. You can get all of our history. You can get the shirt that uh, Jeff has on. You can get all of our legacy What's the Scuttlebutt shirts. You can get the new one with the new logo and um, stickers and all that good stuff there as well. But I'm jealous that Jeff has all the coffee, and I'm sitting here drinking a Bart's root beer. <laughs> Which, by the way, this is the only root beer with caffeine in it little heads up for you caffeine lovers out there <laughs> so henry what you reading i am about 307 pages into show off red scorpion by peter sasgan and this is the red scorpion is the war patrols of the uss rasher and peter sasgan who wrote it his father was a machinist mate on the the rasher so he's uh, it's really good, man. They were in the they were in the Pacific. Just a great submarine book. We've we've talked subs before. Is it a good read? Is it easy yeah. to read? Yeah, man. I'm I'm really enjoying it. And the guy knows it's still the Peter Saskin him the the son who wrote the book was a naval veteran. So I mean he knows the vernacular. It's in fact I think Naval Institute Press actually published an edition of it. So you know if they if they picked yeah. it up, it, I think it was published in ninety five. Uh, it's, it's really good. I mean, it's, it's written by somebody who knows submarines and knows the vernacular and, and obviously has a passion for the history. So yeah, it's a good read. That definitely helps. Dennis, what you reading? (laughs) I'm reading a book by, uh, Michael Kenneth Williams. Um, it's called scenes from my life. Michael Kenneth Williams was, uh, on that TV show, the wire. Okay. Uh, he was a black guy that had the scar. He's got that scar down the middle of his face. And uh, yeah, I'm reading about his life growing up in the hood and uh, how he got out. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a quick read. So I'm proud to say I finally finished the longest book. Actually, it was a very short book, just I'm a slow reader in well, life. And so I, I came in here and I was like, I need a new book to read. And... Um, as we talk about before, sometimes we we just have so many books that we forget we have them. There's a lot of times we're doing a what you're reading segment, and I'll actually order a book in the middle of the show because somebody will bring one up, and I'll forget I even have it. And it just happens to fall perfectly with tonight's episode, and I'm interested if Jeff has an opinion on this book because I'm only 43 pages into it. I'm reading I'm Staying with the Boys, <sighs> The Heroic Life of Sergeant John Basler in USMC. <laughs> Yes. I know you're a Baslone guy, but do you, have you read this particular book? Oh, absolutely. It was so good. I sent it to my brother, and I haven't reordered it. I, I miss having that book. Um, they, The Baslone family gave that man that wrote the book the blessing to write it, and you've noticed in first person. That you're, was you're reading it. 
that was the thing I was going to say. It, yeah. I'm enjoying it, but the part it took me at least 10 pages to get over is the fact that I know the outcome of John Bazelon and I could understand like the early stages of his life. Okay. Maybe he wrote home some letters. You know, he was home during the, you know, the, the war bond drive. He could have relayed a lot of this information, but like when they're heading out to Iwo Jima and he's describing how the guys are acting, the fact that the author who's a third person is writing the book in the first person view during historical periods that we know that he would have never had time to report his feelings back. It just goes to show you a, the amount of detail and research he did. Wow. But once you get over that little, that little thing, and it's maybe not even a stepping stone for anybody. Maybe it's just one of those weird things for me. And like I said, I got over it after, you know, eight or nine pages, but just in the back of my mind, I'm reading this like it was a little, but I'm enjoying it. And I do like how they're, I don't want to say in a Pulp Fiction-esque style, but it kind of is. They start off the book, heading here and then the next chapter goes jumps back to him growing up as a kid and then they go back to modern Iwo Jima era then they go back to him going to you know joining the army so it kind of switches back and forth because obviously that particular mission Iwo Jima is going to be very short content and so they're jumping around so I'm interested to see because I don't know how far into his service this thing goes up into that if they cover the Guadalcanal stuff on there I'm interested to find out um you're gonna love it and don't look at the last page I won't don't because it ends marvelously the thing that kind of threw me off, and you guys speak to me off the air quite a bit, you know that I'm no, I don't clutch my pearls at language, but I was a little surprised at the, some of the language being used as him as a first person. I mean, it made sense, but it's just not something you see too much in a lot of the books that we read. And it, so that, that too, it's like, okay, well, clearly, you know, that's the way he spoke with the upbringing he had. But with a lot of the books that we read, you know, you see the occasional words, but some of us are like, oh wow, well, that's that's cool. Just in the well, in the in the context, and just because of the amount of books we read. Once again, it's not horrible. It's just I was just a I was a little caught. I, I guess caught off guard a little bit. I mean, it didn't offend me by no means, but it was just it made perfect sense, especially the environment they're in. I just think sometimes these books are censored, whereas this is being more true and realistic. I felt the same way, and when you get to he, you will talk about his time in the army. Yeah, I'm on that and, now where he's talking about Manila and the girl down there. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and you definitely see Vaseline maybe in a slightly different light. And, and by different, I mean probably a truer light. Yeah. Um, Not the, the guy, comic yeah, book. Yeah, the guy was – he was a scrappy dude. And he came from a scrappy place in America, right? I mean, um, that, that – uh, after reading that, I'll be honest, after reading that, I'm a little – I feel like maybe the actor that played him in the Pacific didn't quite – was maybe a little too refined, a little too clean cut. I mean, if you listen to or watch videos of Baselin when he came home on that war bond drive, right, um, you can tell that dude – He's not super educated. He doesn't really even speak all that well, and he kind of he kind of stumbles, and he has a very unique accent. I mean, it's a very thick Italian accent, but there's something else kind of mixed in there. Um, and I know even like my my grandfather, who never spoke Portuguese or anything, but but thick Portuguese descent, uh, had some of those same kind of just didn't say words right. Like he wouldn't say mother; he would say mutter. 
yeah. a mutter. And like I said, brother, I'm fresh you know? into this book, but to just point, I think in the miniseries, they kind of gave you the Warbond version of him. I mean, they touched on a little bit with him and the actresses, but according to this book, there's a lot more of that going on than just the occasional Warbond tale. Because he, right. the terminology, he, he was a pea chasing. <laughs> I mean, that was basically his, his major... At least early on in the army time in Manila, it was boxing, um, chasing, chasing down evildoers and chasing tail. <laughs> that was his yeah. his hierarchy, his his holy trilogy, if you will. Henry, have you read it? I actually have not. Yeah. I think I think Jeff was talking about this one night. And I think this was one of his books during the show. Pulled up Amazon, hit order, and yeah. then just put it on my bookshelf. And so yeah, like one. I said, I'm 43 pages into it. Um, I like it. Just. I had to get my mind wrapped around the whole third person, first person thing, but um, it's it's powerful. I think it's a powerful way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody have anything to plug? Anything coming down the pipe? I know we said earlier Jeff was on an episode of We the Happy Few, and that's still available, right? People can. I'm sure they can still find that and and find it through their services. I've got a short stories uh, series that I'm starting. I had Jeff actually read my first uh, first one. He read the rough draft. It's going to be about the uh, suicide cliffs at Saipan. Um, oh, boy. And the uh, LCI gunboats that were uh, around there with interpreters trying to get the, the, the civilians to not kill themselves. And then the, um, uh, the aftermath, what happens to human bodies, um, and this and that, and the sailors, what they had to deal with. Because uh, they couldn't leave the area, they had to stay there. So um, it's a short story series that I'm starting, and the first one uh, will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's going to be uh, about that. Yeah. Well, get a hold of us when that release comes out. We'll be more than happy to promote it. I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Henry. You got anything coming down the line? You're usually a busy fella. Uh, yeah, I was on Sarah's show last week. Um. As far as what is this? Well, this is March sixth. That's nothing. Nothing else to mention right now. Stuff farther out, but nothing. Nothing I thought of to to bring up. I've missed like three events this year so far, and it just I really I want to get out and go, but like especially down here in Florida, it's, they're like two or three hours away, four hours away, which ain't far. I've been doing this for years, but. I'll tell you what, we're still, the hurricane, just the, and we got off light. I mean, I just had, to, I still, I'm still waiting for my check from my mortgage company because I'm waiting for them to send it back. I still, I got to get a roof and both my cars painted and that's getting off light. And just the amount my insurance has gone up from them has increased our monthly nut mm. so much. It's like, well, I'm probably not going to be doing too many you know, driving my V8 Tundra 200 miles. And you had to rebuild them. your fence, didn't you? Yeah, but I did that all, you know. You did that on your own. I did that on my own. It took me two weeks. A little bit. The gate cost me more than putting up the rest of the damn fence because the fence post and all that stuff is is um, commercial grade, and you can't find it. You know, I found the post because it's universal, but the slats look like clean up those out of my yard but the gate itself i had to buy a different version and i spent more on the gate but anyhow it's like you know especially gas prices inflation it's like i can't be driving to Georgia did your dad right get his gibson replaced um no sadly um actually yes 
he had insurance on, I think, one of the pianos, his mixing board. He did not. The crazy thing was is he had one piano in a soft gig bag, and then he had one of them in a hard uh, road case, and the one in the road case got more water in it than the gig bag. The gig bag just floated around. But, yeah, he, my brother's supposed to be coming down from Vegas at the end of the month, and we're going to go drywall my dad's house. So it's been – the hurricane hit in September. My dad's house – his neighborhood still doesn't have electricity. I think – him and f- six other people's houses, trailers were the only ones that weren't completely annihilated. Mm-hmm. And so um, his church has helped him gut everything. So my brother comes down, we're going to go over there and help him drywall and get it ready. And uh, But yeah, so he's just, it's so many people down here are still put out. It's just insane. But yeah, so I don't have a lot of living history events to, to come on here and talk about just because, I mean, there was one last week and I, I didn't make it to, but anyhow. We want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. And if you haven't done so already, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can find all the old episodes. Every single episode we've ever done is up on that website. Um, you can also click on the um, support the show and you can sign up for our Patreon. It'll cost you a dollar a month. There's two other plans on there if you want to sign up for those. Great. We're, we're, we're more than happy at the dollar a month. And if you haven't done so, please head over to YouTube, like, subscribe, watch our content, and you can join in on the conversation. Uh, Black 17 Productions was making comments during the show about their favorite World War II miniseries. So if you guys want to watch us live stream every Monday night and join in the conversation, you can ask us questions in real time in the chat, and we'll be more than happy to answer them and um, all of that good stuff. But thank you guys so much for myself, Jeff Copsetta, Henry Sledge, and our friend Dennis. We want to thank each and every one of you, and we will talk to you all sometime next Monday. This has been a Digital 410 production.